as uh, we continue our studies together. Happy Father's Day to all the, the fathers out there. Um, it's a very special day, I know, for you guys. Uh, Kenley came in this morning, and she gave me a card, and she said, Daddy, this is so you can take it and show it to everybody. So I would be, uh, I would upset her if I did not show you that she has written me a card, and she put it on my favorite color. So you will see the neon green sticking out. But uh, happy Father's Day to all of you. Um, as we continue our study, we're looking into the law of God, specifically as it's been revealed in the Old Testament for us, uh, the law of Moses. We're looking at the book of Deuteronomy and uh, drawing some conclusions from it. Um, and before we dig in a little bit deeper, uh, let's spend a little time in prayer uh, before we begin this study. Let's pray together. Lord our God, we come before you. Thank you for another day, an opportunity to dive into your word. Help us as we seek ways to understand what you have revealed from the beginning of time all the way until now and how that we may use it uh, and understand it so that we can share it with others. Be with us in this time of study. Be with all the other teachers and uh, all of us as students of your word. We love you so much and we praise to you in the name of your son and our savior, Jesus. Amen. So working on this idea of untying the law, uh, working through some challenges that we may be presented with as we are studying, maybe some uh, things that pop up to us as we read through the Old Testament, specifically as we're looking at the law itself and we're looking at the book of Deuteronomy. What I want to focus on this morning is what I'm titling Issues with the Law. Uh, this week and next week are going to be uh, a little strange in how we're presenting this information and understand the things that we're going to be looking at. A lot of this is going to be how people view the law, that they may see some issues or some ideas. And, and our goal is to have a better grasp of it so that we can help educate other people, so that we can be equipped. And as oppositions come our way, we know how to handle them. Some things we're going to be looking at this morning, we could go and spend an entire uh, quarter just looking at them. Uh, but this is going to be part of an in-house conversation. So as we're looking at believers of the word, we kind of have a leg up as if uh, instead of us being out in the world and maybe some people presenting issues to the scriptures, we may have to start uh, way back earlier and dealing with this information. But since this is an in-house discussion, we're speaking uh, from faith to faith and understanding that we know what the scriptures have to say. So some of the things that we're going to be looking at, like I said, we could dig into them more and we could see what people outside of Christianity may say, but we're wanting to look at them inside. And when we think about issues with the law, what are some struggles that people may be faced with as they're trying to understand what the law is all about. Here we are in our Christian context, and we already have some issues that maybe bubble up because we're looking back at the old law, not really knowing how to use it at times. How do we utilize this book, uh, these words, these commandments for us today? We know we don't live under the, the law, and that's going to be one of the things that we'll see in a little while. We know we don't live under it, but are there still things that we can learn? So how I want to approach this is look at um, based off of the foundation that we laid in the past two classes and allowing that to speed us up so we can get here today. I have two important points just drawing what we've uh, said so far up to this point. And we are, as I said, speaking in the realm of faith. Number one, the law is an extension of God's nature. Because I believe in God, because I believe that He is good, he is loving, He is just, He is merciful. All those concepts about God, because I believe all of those things, if that kind of God issues a command, I'm going to follow it. And I think to the Israelites, they understood this, but they wouldn't follow it wholly and completely as we saw. And that leads to this next point. For us to understand the commandments, 
you have to love God first. A pure love for God is going to say that my heart, my soul, everything about me is directed to what you have to say, and I want to live that out. If I love God first, then if he asks me to do something, I'm going to do it. If I love God first, I'm going to love my neighbor as myself, and he will give me commands, and I will take those commands, and I'll do something about them. This is what we dealt with in our first two uh, classes of this series. We looked at the nature of the law. And we saw some of these tie-ins to who God is. And then we talked about the conditions of the law. And the conditions of the law, God says, you love me, you will do my commandments. And we see the same thing shared in the New Testament. Jesus says the same thing over and over again about the commandments and about following him. And if we can uh, use these as a foundation, we will have a better orientation as we are looking through some of the issues that may pop up. So let's ask this question. Maybe something specific comes to your mind or just a general idea. But what are some issues people have with the law? Speaking about the law of Moses specifically, what are some issues that may pop up in your mind? Yeah. Okay, way too many rules we talked about. Uh, And, you know, I think about one of those key passages that I'm going to keep drilling home as God is speaking and um, through the, the last part of the book of Deuteronomy, he said, look, I've given these commandments to you, but they are all under one main commandment, which is to love God. So maybe people look at it and it's just, it's too much, God. It's too much. What else? Yeah. Okay, so external opinions. Um, okay. Yes, external obedience. Um, as people are looking at, you know, how do we take this and, and live it out? Is it just these actions themselves? So, you know, as long as I uh, make sure that I fall in line and I put up uh, certain parameters at the top of my house. So in case we're up there and we're having uh, a dinner party on top of my house that I have uh, parameters around it just so you don't fall up and I'm liable to it. Uh, you know, those are external things, but why would I do that? Hope you can start seeing, well, it's because I love God and I love my neighbors myself. I wouldn't want to cause any harm to them. So, you know, God has to tell me, hey, here's even how you structure your home to take care of each other. It's not just external obedience. It's the internal as well. And it's that heart, soul, mind, and strength, love, all these things together. Very good point. What else? Say that again. All right, so the old law, the old covenant is very bloody uh, when you think about the sacrifices that are required of people. And this is just the imagery, and I think we really miss what this would look like. Um, and it's, it's very apparent to me when you think about Jesus being the uh, Passover lamb. Uh, we'll talk about some feasts in our fundamental uh, sections of the law, but I just have to talk about it now because I, I think this is so vivid if you consider this. Jesus being the Passover lamb. The Passover was a very important time for the Israelites, right? It wasn't just for the priest to offer one sacrifice. That was the day of atonement. They would do that. The Passover is when family units would go and take that, that special lamb that, was, um, that made sure it had no spot or blemish. They had this lamb, and they had to come to Jerusalem. They had to come to the temple and offer that sacrifice, make sure it was done correctly, and they would bring it back home and enjoy it. How many family units would show up in Israel on the day that it was time for the Passover? How many lambs do you think were slain at a given time in the temple? 
If you read the book of Leviticus, starting in chapter 1, it gives us the rules of what that is to look like, where a family is to come in with their lamb, the priest is to take it, um, they put their hands on it, they, they cut his neck, and they, they prepare it in a certain way, they burn part of it. Can you imagine standing in line, heading to the temple, and you've got families in front of you, you've got uh, these lambs next to you, and you're hearing the, the sheep. You're hearing and you're seeing and you're smelling. All the senses heightened. And it's not just a handful of families. All these people coming to one place. If you had a problem with blood, it would be quite an issue, but that's the consequence of sin. Why are all these sacrifices there? To understand our relationship to God, what He asked for, and, and so, many, so many things to break apart there. But, man, that would be quite challenging. Um, but just imagine the sights and the sounds and the smells if you were there. And I don't know, I think about Jesus when he says, you know, if you were offering your gift at the altar and you realize you have something against your brother, leave it there and go away. You've been in line <laughs> and you're seeing all this happen and you're realizing the reason why I'm standing here with this, this lamb, whatever the sacrifice may be, I'm offering this, it's because I've sinned and it's going to die instead of me because, you know, sin requires a death. And so it's going to pay the price and start maybe coming to your mind of maybe I need to go correct something. Just because I'm offering this lamb, there's some other things maybe I've got to put in place along with it. Then you come back and you offer your sacrifice. Um, so yeah, absolutely. But anything else may come to your mind when you think about issues of the law? Okay, so Daniel's saying from a physical standpoint, maybe you look at the law and you think, why in the world would I want to put myself in subjection to these kind of commandments? I think from a human standpoint, we look at something like that and think, why would I want this to be my guide for, you know, for religion, for government, and so many other things? And maybe people look at it and they're like, I, I don't think I want to be a part of that. Um, and in some profound way, even people look at Christianity and, you know, they see Christianity as, you know, uh, people that are just, you know, they can be hateful and all this kind of stuff. It's, I think they don't understand what all these things are all about. But if you go back to these two main premises that we established, the law is an extension of God's nature and that we love God first and we'll do whatever he asks us to do. If we can put those things in place, we're going to realize he's going to offer things to us that are good. He's not wanting us to be hateful. It's people taking those commandments and going the wrong way with them and not understanding what they're all about. Really, it's not understanding God and our priority with Him. So there are a lot of different issues, and I appreciate uh, you guys sharing. And anytime you have a comment, uh, please feel free to add it to this class. I think it makes it beneficial. But as I'm looking at some of the things, um, some issues maybe that people have with the law, maybe you want to get into uh, specific commandments that are just kind of strange. I was uh, flipping through the book of Numbers. Uh, Dwight was asking me, he said, hey, Bill, you didn't give us any homework for last time, so what am I supposed to read? And I said, okay, start reading the book of Numbers. And uh, his countenance fell. <laughs> but uh, I started reading through the book of Numbers, and, and something you realize as you read, you know, Deuteronomy is the second telling of this new generation uh, about the law and what it was all about. You read Numbers, and it's this story interjected with commandments, interjected with stories and commandments, stories and commandments. It's almost like, Move counter move for God. 
You know, he, he's bringing out all these commandments. And, and every time the Israelites step somewhere, he's like, okay, let me tell you something about where you're going and what you're doing right now. And the Israelites step in another place. And like, okay, let me give you some more commandments about that. It's the way that we parent. It's the way that we establish laws in general. We look at things that are around us and we say, okay, let's, let's hem that in. Let's, let's kind of correct maybe a misunderstanding that you have. Well, one of the things that I started noticing, if you think about the book of Numbers, Numbers chapter 5, there are some of these weird commandments and, and ways that they handle things that, that seem strange. Why does God have a test for adultery that involves drinking some dirt water and having a thigh swell for the guilty? Now, that's Billy's very simplistic uh, statement about what is going on, but I challenge you now to go read Numbers chapter 5. You're, uh, I know you're going to be focusing on that, so the next 10 minutes won't matter what I'm talking about. But you read Numbers chapter 5, and there's a test for somebody, uh, a husband that looks at his wife and, and wonders if she has been unfaithful or not. And they said, okay, here's what you're going to do. Um, and there's, a, there's all these commandments, and he says, this is how you test to see if somebody has been guilty of adultery or not. Um, it's kind of strange. We see that and we're like, okay, there's definitely something that's not just a physical commandment. There's a spiritual aspect to it because these things don't make sense unless God is involved. Maybe you think about how some of the priests would make decisions. You know, the high priest had this, uh, this elaborate gown that he would wear and, and there was the, the fod that he would wear that had all the jewels and things, but there was a, a pocket in there and it had two stones, the Urim and the Thummim. So the next time you're in um, a Bible bowl and somebody's wanting to know the name of those two stones, the Urim and the Thummim, uh, you will get extra bonus points there. But the way that he would make decisions, if he was going to ask God of something, he would put his hand into his, uh, his coat and he'd pull out one of those stones and it was kind of like this yes, no uh, thing that he would ask these questions. You see God's hand involved in that. A, a prophet that comes along. And these rules about prophets, a prophet has a job because God gave him something to speak. Some of the miracles and things that are mentioned throughout the Old Testament, they happen because God is involved. And I think one of those cases can be seen in Numbers chapter 5 with a, a case like this. The only way that happens is if God is involved. But somebody may look at that and they say, well, that seems... That seems weird. That seems like maybe there's some issues from here, but it's what God says. Have you ever thought about a Nazarite vow and just the rules that's involved with that? You know, I, I think about Samson. I think about um, John the Baptist and some of their uh, you know elaborate lifestyles and things they did. You think about growing out their hair and not allowing it to be cut, not touching a dead body. Um, all these things are a, a Nazarite. That was the vow that they would take. And God has rules about that. He said, okay, if you're going to take this vow, Here's what I don't want you to do. And if you will take those, and this is all in Numbers chapter 5. That's another one, Nazarite vow. If you read about that and then go read the book of Samson, find how many times he goes against that vow. How many dead bodies does he end up touching? Uh, I think he eats some honey out of one of them, in fact. Um, you know, and so these are so strange maybe to people that are not looking at it from the right perspective, kind of like what Daniel was talking about. Um, or just in general, you know, just to call it what it is, you think about God's commandment when he says, uh, you know, I want all male children, you know, I want them to be circumcised. What kind of commandment is that, that a God would ask for something like this to be done? And we see people struggling with that from when that was first established all the way through even to the New Testament where people were looking to remove the marks of circumcision and people looking at the Jews and the Jews trying to fit into culture. All of these things people may see as issues with the law, but if we can establish those two things, that anything that God asks is coming from His nature and He's got a reason for it. And we, if we will love Him, we will obediently follow what He says. 
Now, that requires a lot more study. But if I were going to take maybe four big hitters um, for us to just consider this morning after I, I lob those things out at you, if I were going to think about four things of the law, here's what I want to deal with this morning. I want to talk about cultural influence. People may see the Old Testament and they say, you know what, it was just a, a bunch of laws and stuff that came from other laws that are already around it. There was no you know, divine hand, a, a finger that writes out the Ten Commandments as it's described in the book of Exodus. There's, there's nothing like that that God was involved. It's just people coming up with societal rules and it's the same thing today. It's all based on relativism. So what is culture's influence? Uh, maybe somebody will look at that as a challenge to the law. What about these difficult commands? God asking people to do things that just seems a, a little off or a little strange to us. How do we bring that back in the right way? What about faith and works? Man, what a challenge that this has been to Christianity, to Judaism. How do you put faith and works together? And it's still being discussed today. I, I enjoy talking to Giff if you guys were in here in his uh, class that he did on James when he went through James chapter 2. He talked about the faith and works, and I encourage to just as extra study, go listen to that particular lesson. He did a four-part series. I'm assuming that was part two. Um, but we'll deal with this just a little bit. And then just modern relevance. What do we do with the law? And, of course, that's where we've been this whole time is we're looking and studying into the law, but how does it impact where we are today? So those are the four things I'm going to try and accomplish as we go uh, a little further into this. So cultural influences. And I'm framing this question in this way, and so let's just kind of dialogue with it a little bit, and then I'll give some reasons behind it. How has culture influenced the Bible? Stop and consider this question for a minute. What comes to your mind? How has culture influenced the Bible? Okay, so even challenge the question, I'm fine with this. Comment on that a little more, George. Okay, so asking this question, has culture influenced the Bible? It's actually the other way around. The Bible has influenced culture, absolutely. Uh, and like I said, I'm, I'm framing this in a very particular way. So respond to this a little bit more. Okay, so part of the people of God living in the world is that, um, you know, you use the, the uh, you talked about temperature specifically. She said that, you know, you think about uh, temperature of the people living there, that maybe some of the commands are because of geographic location, that those things. And so in some ways, yes, the culture it impacts it, you know, um, if he told them all to wear parkas and everything, well, you know, you might assume they might be in a colder climate or something like that. Um, but thinking about just geographical location, that influenced some of the things that were being said. Okay, so as he's giving these commandments, he's looking at where they are in that time. I think you're getting closer to some of the things that start coming to my mind. Um, yes. Okay. 
Yeah, so, um, you know, as these writers are writing, they're using things that are right in front of them. So you think about a shepherd. Um, that is a motif that's used all throughout the Bible in the time of, you know, Jesus giving parables, um, you know, the apostles, all of these kind of things that, you know, they would talk about, you know, sheep and shepherds. Well, we can go Google and we know what that looks like. But if you never have tended to sheep, um, you don't really, you know, that maybe is not right there in front of you. But if you are a culture like Israel, they were known for taking care of sheep. And so that was something very important to them. But, I mean, there's so many other things that they were dealing with as they were writing. You think about Paul and one of the things we deal with in Ephesians chapter 6 when he's talking about the armor of God. How profound is it that Paul is sitting there in prison, chained together, and who is chained next to him or who's on his left and his right? Roman soldiers. And he's talking about the armor of God. He's got it sitting right there next to him, clanking right there in his face. And he's using that. But he's also being inspired, of course, as he's, he's dealing with these things that part of culture being in these places that uh, some of the commandments, some of the things that are shared is because it's, it's, it's addressing what is going on around. And that's kind of what I wanted to deal with this. Some people look at culture's influence on the Bible and they say that the Bible has changed over time because culture has changed. And so all the commandments that maybe we see about rules regarding you know, women's roles and things like that, uh, those are no longer relevant to us because culture has changed and, and we need to do away with those. That's the wrong way of looking at this. The way that we see it is that there are principles. There are things that we are interpreting the scriptures that are being spoken there, but many of them are universal. They continue and they span over the course of time. And so a lot of things that we see in the Old Testament, you can go back before Moses had the Old Testament and you can see rules about them. Or you can go outside of that and you can come to the time of the New Testament and you can find how those teachings or the principles behind them are just the same. The one that comes to my mind is divorce. You know, Moses had to give laws about divorce. And what did people challenge Jesus with in Matthew chapter 19? They came to Jesus and they say, look, you know, we know what Moses said about all these, you know, certificates of divorce. He could do it for any reason. But, you know, what's going on here? And what does Jesus say? It's because of the hardness of your hearts that Moses had to give you more rules about how to take care of each other because you would start divorcing people left and right and not giving them any provisions or help at all. And so a lot of the divorce laws in the Old Testament were to help people. But where does he go to actually establish what marriage and divorce is all about? He goes back to Genesis. He goes back to the garden. And when we come to the New Testament, beyond Jesus, and we look at rules about divorce and we see how that is handled, I think about 1 Corinthians chapter 7, how does Paul handle the marriage relationship? Well, he quotes Jesus who then quotes the Old Testament, that then quotes things happening in Genesis. There is a consistent factor all the way across. And in two more weeks, what we're going to look at are some of these things. When we look at the feast and we look at dietary commandments and all these things, what is the universal principle found in all of them? Well, it's something about God that we can know and how to follow Him. And so when people look at this question of how has culture influenced the Bible, they are maybe addressing it in a couple of different ways and right on track with what George is saying as well as other people is that it's really the other way around. The Bible has influenced culture, but there are things that were happening culturally during that time that is important for us to see. And that's when we talk about the historical setting. What is happening when we are looking at the book of Deuteronomy? Well, historically, the people are standing at the brink of the Jordan River and they are about to cross over into what type of world? 
pagan Canaanite world. They're going somewhere that they are going to see gods that they never even have heard of. How do you handle new information that's about to be found in a land that you don't understand? Well, on this side of the Jordan, God says, before you find it, before you see it, let me tell you what it's all about. Why is he talking, you know, and people go to the Old Testament, they think about that verse that talks about, you know, uh, tattooing and, and making marks on your body. Why was he telling them about that? Because there were rituals and things that were happening in that land. And when they go into that land and they start seeing it, he said, look, I already told you about that. I already told you that's the culture you're going into. And the reason why I'm telling you this commandment over here is to protect you from that over there. Do you see what's going on here? When we ask this question about culture's influence and the issues that may come out from it, if we can put it in the right perspective, we'll understand this a little bit more. I think it's interesting as you study ancient Near East, um, it'd be a whole category for you to consider, that there are, there are codes and things that were already in place. Uh, people talk about, you know, Hammurabi's code. It's one of the oldest law codes that we have. And there are some really neat things that were in there that were for uh, the, the Babylonians and those people during that time that were to help them function together. Some of them were about abortion, how not to go down that route and how to protect the unborn. There were rules about it. There were a lot of ancient Near Eastern cultures that had rules about abortion, about murder, about stealing. We can open up any other cultural you know, handbook and we can see that there are some things that are universal. God dealt with all of those. He helped us see that. And the Code of Hammurabi, it even talks about an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And we see that in the scripture. So some people will look and they'll say, which one came first? The law of Moses or the law of man? Well, as we looked at in the first session in Romans chapter 2, there is a law written in the hearts of men that we can recognize these things and they make sense because God programmed us, made us to recognize it. So uh, let's look at maybe some passages to help illustrate this. Deuteronomy chapter 7. This whole chapter is about uh, a chosen people. Uh, David and I were talking a little bit um, right before class, and he was mentioning you know, Noah in those beginning chapters of Genesis, and that there was this idea that God's people will be preserved. They stand out differently. Noah and his family stood out differently than the rest of the world. Noah was found blameless because of his dedication to the Lord in opposition to those people that had every thought and, e every thought and intention was e uh, focused on evil continually. Chosen people stands out. And in Deuteronomy chapter 7, there, we see how a chosen nation stands out. But um, look at verse 6. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. This, uh, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. How will they stand out when they cross the Jordan? It'll be very apparent very quickly who is part of the God of Israel and who is a part of the gods of the land. You will see it by the way they dress. You'll see it by the way they eat. You'll see it by the way they wage war. You'll see it by the way they establish their government. You'll see it by the sounds that they make. It is apparent who are the people of God. And the people of God could cross over to any culture and be prepared. Don't we feel the same way? 
We train missionaries here in the United States to go anywhere in the world with the scriptures and they can be effective because the word of God is able to permeate the hearts of men wherever they are found. Maybe uh, another one to help uh, along with this is Deuteronomy chapter 17. Deuteronomy 17, uh, starting in verse 14, going through the end of the chapter. uh, These are laws about kings. And when you decide to have a king, think about when Israel first wanted a king. What were some of the what was their rationale behind wanting a king over them? What are some things they said back in what First Samuel chapter eight? Everybody else has a king. We want one too. Okay. What what else? Any other rational um, rational thoughts they came up with to help justify why they wanted a king? Okay, they wanted uh, human leadership to rule over them. And that's why Samuel got upset. Uh, he was looking at him, he's like, look, you guys have actually chosen God. I mean, you have chosen man to rule over you instead of God. You've rejected God as your king. Now, in that time, they didn't really think about it that way. They thought, oh, well, maybe I'm in, you know, invoking God's commandment here in Deuteronomy 17. But the big one that sticks out to me is they said, we want a king because we see what all the other people are doing. And God already prepped them for that. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, look at verse 14. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And then he goes and gives us some other commands. He's like, hey, by the way, also, when you decide to have a king, um, he can take some of your possessions. He can tax them. He can do whatever he wants to. And because you wanted him as a king, you follow through with it. But I'm just telling you already, when you cross into the land and you, you start looking at other cultures, you start looking at what other people are doing, I'm trying to help you here. This is back in Deuteronomy. This is this side of the Jordan before they cross over. He says, I know what you're thinking. I know what you're going to think. Be aware. Does that make sense how culture influences the Bible and how some people may frame that in the way that is an issue, but when we look at it as people of faith, we see what God is doing. He's helping them and preparing them so that they know what is coming. Yes, ma'am. So um, making a comment that you look at uh, the last statement here, you may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. And you see other nations having a, a similar thought or, you know, in the United States, uh, not having a president that was, um, that was born elsewhere. Um, we, we see this. And so you, know, you think about influence and see where it continues to go from there, people looking at it. Um, but I, I do love that, that last phrase, who is not your brother, that you have someone that knows what's going on. Someone that's part of the family. You're not just talking about, you know, biological. He's talking about the family of Israel, your brother. Um, don't look for another one because they're going to bring in things that aren't right. And what happens when a king gets a wife of a foreign nation? They fall. They allow that foreign nation, that influence to come in and change their heart and their mind. So any other questions or comments about this idea of cultural influence being an issue?
All right, let's think about the next one, difficult commands. And I, I'm leaving this one open so uh, you can respond to it. And uh, we've already mentioned a few of them, but just out of curiosity, what comes to your mind? Why would God command, plug something in? What comes to your mind filling in this question? Or maybe think about somebody's uh, accusations to Christianity, uh, but specifically uh, the laws here. What comes to your mind? Yeah, so the big one is why would God command his people to commit genocide? And people call it the uh, cannot genocide. And that's one of the, you know, speaking of apologetic arguments, that's the ones launched against Christianity and the God of the Bible. Because I believe it's the same God of the Old Testament as the God of the New Testament. And so we'll pair them all together. And if we were dealing with people that were coming out and they said, why would you want to follow a God that would say something like that? Um, that, that's a very good, uh, very good one that comes to mind, and we'll deal with that a little bit more. Uh, any follow-up comments, even on that one, or uh, how else would you fill in this blank? Why would God command? Mm. Yeah. So um, the commandment about stoning a disobedient child. Why would He have that in there? Um, man. Talk about disobedience on Father's Day. Okay, so are you thinking about um, having to deal with a commandment like that? Why would God ask that? Man, there, there's so many ways to, to address that. Um, but in some ways, here's what starts coming to my mind. How did parents treat their children in that land? What were some of the things that we know their relationship to their children? What were some things that were going on in that land? Do what? Human sacrifices, the God of Molech, I think one of the most terrifying gods uh, in how they would take their children and they would burn them in the hands of, the, of Molech. Any other things, uh, practices that would come up? So um, that a command like that would lead up to Christ, the understanding that disobedience has great issues that will come from it. But maybe some other principles, just because uh, I, I don't want to leave that out there. Maybe uh, somebody's listening or just I don't want to leave it unaddressed. The reason why I was asking about what does the land look like that they're going into, killing their children for any reason. I think a lot of the reasons why that command was in place is to stop parents from doing things that they should not be doing just however they felt. I think it also started tying in this greater expectation of a family unit that if you knew that your child, that there are consequences, how serious are you going to be about training up your child in the way they should go? What's it about uh, all through the book of Proverbs about sparing the rod? What, why are all those things mentioned? Why is it so serious about training up your children and talking about the Word of God from the morning to the night, standing, walking, sitting, wherever you are, if that is being drilled into your family, what does the family unit look like that takes the Word of God and lives it out? 
disobedience, I think, to the degree being dealt here is going outside completely of that faith and going beyond um, what God has established. But I think a lot of these rules and the principles that are there was for protection. It was for understanding God's expectation. And I think about uh, Hebrews chapter 12, about a child being disciplined. Why was discipline being done? To understand obedience. And so uh, there's a lot of ways uh, to address that. And uh, I just didn't want to leave those hanging out w- without some kind of um, comment to it. So why would God command whatever this may be? So uh, I think about 1 Timothy chapter 1. Verse 8 makes this statement. We know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. Paul commenting to Timothy that's going to be going into some Jewish Gentile places. He's telling him that the law is good. We saw this as well when we were talking about the nature of the law, that it comes from God. If God is good, he's going to share what is good. He's only going to command those things that extend from his nature. He's not going to ask us to do something that goes contrary to his nature. I think about the book of Psalms. Psalm chapter 119. You know what the main thing that is being addressed in that chapter? The law and the love of the law. Um, Deuteronomy chapter, um, excuse me, Psalm 119, verse 137. I mean, we, we, could, we could read all of them and you would see this, but um, this one stuck out to me. Righteous are you, O Lord, and right are your rules. Some people may see, you know, this is kind of circular logic, but as I'm talking about, this is in-house. And so we know who God is. His rules are righteous because he is righteous. They are good. They are right because of who he is. When Paul is looking here in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8, he says, We know the law. It is good if one uses it lawfully, correctly. Psalm 19, 7 through 14 talks about loving the law of God. Uh, some people look at the Old Testament like, how could you love a law like that? that is full of blood, that is full of you know, punishment, full of hatred is the way they will see it, and they'll cast it under that shadow, under that light. Do you understand what God is saying? And, and as we're looking at Deuteronomy, we're looking across the Canaan. Uh, we're looking at the land of Canaan, and we're looking at the people over there. We're seeing the, the gods that they created the Amalekites that disobeyed God, and we were actually waiting for that certain time for them to come up. Uh, You can see that um, leading up, there's a story of what's happening in the land leading up to that point. And when Israel comes through, they are in part the arm of God enacting justice to those that have disobeyed God. Any of those people that are actually convicted by the God of Israel, they are protected. Rahab and her whole family, and we find her in the lineage of Christ. We see things like this. Why is God commanding that? Because of his justice, his mercy, his love. In verse 9, it says, Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever, whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Now, when we started this off, and and I'm kind of drawing some things together here. Paul is telling Timothy, the law is good. 
We can use that to describe the Old Testament as Paul is dealing with Timothy. He's telling about the gospel of Christ, that it is good. And what is it good for? It draws a line between those that are lawless and disobedient, the ungodly and the sinners, the unholy and the profane, those people who strike fathers and mothers and go from there. You can actually find the Ten Commandments in some way alluded to in this type of passage. In accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. When you understand who God is, you understand what He asks you to do. And there are reasons behind it that are an extension of His nature. And so why would God ask us to do something like that? It's because we understand who God is and what He expects from us. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, 7 through 8, For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon Him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? In order for us to call it righteous, we, under, we must understand what righteousness is. For someone to call the law of God unrighteous or unjust or unfair, they have to have a standard of what that is. And they know what fairness is, and they're turning their heart away from it. Um, and that gets into apologetics. But I at least wanted to, to give us a little glimpse in how we may address that from an in-house conversation. So any other statements uh, or questions to go along with this? Going in quick. I understand that. Okay, uh, the next one, faith and works. We'll use this just as rhetorical, and you can hold uh, just so we can get a little further because time is leaving us. So what is the issue with faith and works? It's still being discussed today. You know, you know, is baptism a work? God says that uh, we are not righteous by our works, so why would uh, you try and do some kind of work to please God? It's a misunderstanding about the law. If we can understand how God set up the law and how it was to be done, we would understand what he's saying about faith and works. And there's a lot of passages that will help guide that. Allow me to read some and, and, and tie them together. Galatians chapter 2, 15 through 16. Paul writing to the Galatians says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Trying to do the law itself, you're not going to, you're not going to be able to do everything he's asking you to do. We had to have Jesus for a reason. From Genesis 3, we've known Jesus is coming. And everything has pointed to that moment. In Romans chapter 2, verse 13, For it's not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. One of the issues that's happening here is that people are looking at the external obedience of it, and they were not going all the way down the road. They were not taking their heart to it. And that's what God had talked about all the way through the book of Deuteronomy. Let your heart be into this as well. It would, the Word of God is close to us. It's within us, as we saw in Deuteronomy chapter 30, and then bring that over to Romans chapter 10 about what is in our hearts and our minds. Romans chapter 3, 19 through 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the laws come knowledge of sin. God asking people to do what he's telling them to do. 
Why are those things in place? Because people are sinful. The, what we said, every time they would take a step, he gave them a commandment. He was guiding them all on the way, and that's part of what law means. It is a guide to keep them from going to the left or to the right, from going after this God or after that God. He walked along with them the entire way, giving them the law. And it was to change their entire being. But those people that only looked at the letter of the law did not allow it to change every aspect of them, but they also did not allow it to point them to Jesus. The law was a guardian bringing us over to Jesus. And what you're talking about with obedience, that we learn obedience through all these commandments so that when Jesus comes on the scene, we understand him as ruler and as judge. We understand all these things. They all make sense together. In Romans chapter 7, uh, I'm pulling out this one, uh, these two passages in the middle of the whole chapter to go read. But Paul dealing with what is our relationship to the law. He says, For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. The law of God is good, but sin pollutes our view of it. Now, it's not the same kind of sin that maybe some of our religious friends see. It's our dedication to something else besides God. And the way to remedy that is Jesus. And so uh, the last one, and we, um, this is just out there. What is the modern relevance for us today? I have one passage that uh, I'll show you. Um, I know the bell rang, trying to get this up on here so you see it. And it's not here, so we'll let it go. But what's the modern relevance in um, Romans chapter 15? It says, the things that were written beforehand are for our instruction and for our teaching that we may understand God. So thank you for being here. Um, Appreciate uh, you guys studying this. Look forward to next week as well.